Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost? What king, going out to wage war, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able? So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Since my days at Centenary College, you know that I resolved to do everything I could to foster better relationships between Christians and Jews. But a few years ago, I really felt it on my heart that I needed to go to concentration camps. I asked Gail if she would be willing to go with me to spend an important part of our vacation going to Poland to see the best preserved of the camps. She said she would be willing to do that. We flew to Warsaw. After a day in Warsaw, we had arranged for a driver to meet us there who drove us down to Madonic. It's not a touristy place. We spent the rest of that whole day in the camp. We saw only two other people the whole time. We took a day off and then tackled Auschwitz. And then we went on to Birkenau the famed Udenrampa that you saw the train pull in in Schindler's List. Then we spent the rest of our vacation trying to deal emotionally with what we had seen. So I waited a few years and I said, Gail, I, I have a need to see some of the camps in Germany. Would you be willing to do that? If we took about 10 days and saw six of them, and then we would take a train down south into Switzerland, we would go up to Muren where Der Eiger is right on the left hand and the Jungfrau is right on the right and just be in that beautiful place for a few days. She said, okay. I wanted to go where not only millions of Jews died, but where some outstanding Christians were confined as well. We spent a day at Sachsenhausen. We stood in the cell where Dr. Martin Niemöller was confined. We spent a day at Ravensbrück. These concentration camps now have audio. Steven Spielberg and others have tracked down as many survivors as they can. They're getting them onto CDs so that you can walk through one of the camps. You can push a button at a cell and somebody starts talking to you. I remember the day I arrived at Robinsbrook, a women's camp. They shaved my head roughly. Blood was running down around my ears. I was freezing cold. We went to Bergen-Belsen. Anne Frank, Anna Franca, died there. Corey Ten Boom, a great Christian whose family were in prison because they sheltered Jews in the Netherlands, was at Bergen-Belsen. We went to Buchenwald for a day. We went to Dachau for a day. And then we took a train as far as the trains would take us. We got off and got on a bus. And we had to transfer to a second bus to come to the camp at Flossenburg. Dachau is a touristy place. It's in the suburbs of Munich. Not so with Flossenburg. You have to work hard to get there. 
we saw four other people the day we spent at Flossenburg. But we finally found the spot. It's marked. This is the spot where that cold spring morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's clothes were stripped off of him, naked. He was forced out in front of all the other prisoners and hanged until he died. I needed to stand there and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this horrible thing was done to you. When he was 25, Christians in America had already heard about this brilliant young theologian in Germany. The most prestigious seminaries in America were bringing him over to lecture, even for a few days or a month if they could possibly get him to stay that long. But as things got worse and worse in his native Germany, he went home again. He spoke out against Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, finally even joining a group trying to get Hitler killed so that this horrible war and these massacres could stop. He was found. He was put in the, in the prison at Flossenburg. And here it is, 67 years after he was hanged, and number seven, on the nonfiction best-selling list this year, a new biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For 67 years, every student going to a United Methodist seminary has had to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one of his books is called The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he says, if you want the grace of God to deal with your sins and not with the sinner, you cheapen God's gift. Meaning, if you just want him to forgive you, but you don't want him to change you, you cheapen his gift. Luke says that Jesus has now moved for the, from the home of a Pharisee, where the Pharisees were gloweringly watching him to see if he would commit some social faux pas at a Sabbath dinner. He's back on the road, moving toward Jerusalem. And now the crowds are growing, bigger and bigger crowds, talking, laughing, following, until he turns around and confronts them and says, Are you sure you want to be my disciples? Which of you would start out to build a tower? Dr. Fred Credick says this is person who owns a vineyard he has in mind who would build a little tower in it so that someone could watch to be sure no one came in at night and stole the fruit or no animal got inside and rummaged around destroying the crop that kind of tower who would start out to build such a tower without counting to see if you had enough money to finish and the crowd would have said no one and what king among you would start out to wage war on his enemy without sitting down and counting the cost to see if, in fact, he was able? No one, they would say. And do you know what it would take for you to be my disciple? Wednesday, I went to Rotary of Tulsa, as I do almost every Wednesday. Our former mayor, Kathy Taylor, chaired a panel discussion. Three other people on the panel who were there to beg these almost 500 Rotary women and men to be community volunteers. One was from Tulsa Public Schools. She told a little bit about the demographics in our Tulsa Public School District. Eighty 
85% of the students attending Tulsa Public Schools are on some kind of food subsidy in this county. Thousands of them, one parent. No male influence in their lives or no female influence in their lives. We need volunteers, she said. We need volunteers. We need tutors who can teach subject matter. Are you good at math? Are you good at English? Are you good at spelling? We need mentors who will just sit and listen. How are you doing? How can I help you? The second one, from Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Similar story. All these little girls, boys in our community who desperately need somebody to mentor. This fellow said, I need an hour a week. You go to the school. Time is arranged. It's either during the lunch hour, maybe recess time, maybe a study hall time. You get the hour with this young girl, this boy. We have to check your background. We have to be sure you've always behaved yourself. You never, ever, ever have done anything wrong with a child before. But then we need you to mentor. We need you to be a listener. The third was a professor from Oklahoma State University. He said, we have lots of disabled American veterans who have been tragically wounded in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan who would like to be independent by building their own businesses. They don't know how. You women and men, he said, have built businesses. You are Tulsa's leaders. Would you mentor a disabled American veteran on how to build his or her own business? What, what would we have to do? Well, you have to come to Stillwater for a whole week. And we put you through a grind for a whole week on things we want you to communicate. And then an hour a week for a whole year. You see, these busy people were asking, what do you want from me? What do you expect from me? And that's what Jesus is doing. Number two. Are you willing to hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, members of your family? Now, scholars here say this is harsh language because it is a Semitic expression that doesn't translate well into English. Uh, Dr. Fred Craddock, again, in his commentary, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson in his, both say it means detach yourself from, but both agreed that Matthew probably put the finger on it. You remember this whole year as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, I've been reminding you that three of the four Gospels scholars call synoptics because they look alike. Mark is oldest, briefest. Matthew and Luke are following the outline of Mark. You can see this if you, if you know how to look. They're following Mark's basic outline of what Jesus did next. But Matthew and Luke have access to teaching material parables primarily, that Mark doesn't seem to know about or did not include. But from time to time, one thinks, my readership isn't going to get that, and he changes something slightly from the other. For example, Matthew is giving you the Sermon on the Mount. Luke calls his the Sermon on the Plain. But they both come to the conclusion, and Matthew says, so be perfect the way God is. He's writing to Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus was greater than Moses. They'll get that. 
Luke's writing to Gentiles. He says, Gentiles, they follow the, the teachings of Plato, that nothing perfect happens on this place where we live, only up there somewhere. And so Luke is going right along word for word with Matthew, and then he says, instead of be perfect, be merciful the way God is merciful. In this case, Matthew has this same material in front of him that Luke does, and Luke says, you have to be willing to hate your mother, hate your father, brother, sister, and Matthew says, well, no, uh, can you love them less than you love me? Will you love me more? If you love me more, it puts all those other relationships into proper perspective. It's a different thing. Jesus is not telling us in any sense to do away with love. You see that how David died 10 days ago? This morning at 8.30, I looked up at the chapel choir and how David meant nothing. You could look in their eyes and they never heard of this guy. But some of you my age know Hal David. He teamed up with Burt Bacharach for years. Bacharach composing the tune, Hal David writing the words. And when they met this young singer named Dionne Warwick, the three of them had hit after hit after hit. They also wrote for the movies. Uh, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, they are the ones that did Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. But one of my favorites was the one Dionne Warwick sang. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing there's still too little of. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are mountains and hillsides enough to climb. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And not just for some, but for everyone. Number three your possessions. It literally says in Greek, say goodbye to your stuff. Say goodbye to your stuff. You've got a bigger allegiance now than accumulating stuff. Daniel Mai was seven years old. He lived in Vietnam. His father was a fisherman. They had sided with the Americans during the Vietnam War, and now the Americans were long gone, and they were still having to deal with the communists. He said, when my father caught fish, the communists took them. In communism, the government owns everything. So finally, Daniel says, I was only seven, when one night I was watching, I told you little ones are keen observers. He said, I saw my father go into my grandmother's room, put his hands in front of him and bow to her three times. I'd seen this happen before when my grandfather died. Member of the family after member of the family walked up to the body and quietly bowed three times. I knew my father was saying to his mother, I never expect to see you alive again. And then he said to me, quickly, quickly, go to the boat. We went to the fishing boat, 32 of us, 
my father's sister, her husband, his brother, his wife, their children. It wasn't a huge boat, about 32 feet long, but only seven feet wide. It was a fishing boat. Can you imagine how crowded it was with 32 family members trying to flee the communist? He said, my father pushed off and we went out into the dark. On the eighth day, a typhoon hit us, thunder, lightning. All our food was gone. The only water we had was what you could catch in your hands falling from the sky. I heard my aunt, my uncle saying to my dad, we gotta go home, we're gonna die. All our kids are gonna die out here in this dark water. We didn't make it, we gotta go home. And I saw my father stand up in this little boat, lift his hands toward heaven and say, oh God, we can't go back. There's no going back. Help us move on. And we went on. It took five more days. And then one morning as the sun rose, we saw Hong Kong off in the distance. Hong Kong and freedom. A year in the Philippines, California, USA. There come moments when there's no going back, only forward. Can you leave your stuff behind and follow him? Number four, will you take up your cross? You see, he's told his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem now. Back there in chapter 9, he told them, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities, and they're going to kill me. So again, these scholars I was reading this week, I have seven really wonderful commentaries on Luke, and they were all saying, do you see here that, that these people really don't have a clue what's being expected of them? They might have been like lots of people today saying, well, yeah, I got a cross, my shoulder really, I got a bad knee, whatever. That's not a cross. It may be a burden, not a cross. A cross is something you willingly take on to yourself. It's taking on this role of being a willing subject of the king of kings, of praying with all our hearts, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you're paying attention every Sunday to the words of this response to the prayers that Dr. Pansira picked out for us. I leaned over to him a minute ago and I said, Joel, this is the third Sunday in Kingdom Tide and these words are meaning more to me every Sunday. Listen to them. This is my prayer, O Lord of all earth's kingdoms. Thy kingdom come on earth, thy will be done. Let Christ be lifted up till all shall serve him and hearts united learn to live as one. O hear my prayer, thou God of all the nations. Myself I give thee. Let thy will be done. Tulsa people, did you see the interview with Dr. Nakaida? Dr. Nakaido was born in Tokyo. If you missed our diversity Vesper service a couple of weeks ago, you missed something very special. Dr. Kroll and those who work with him had arranged for 
some of those in our congregation whose families of origin are in another part of the world, another country, three of them gave testimonials and a number of them had brought dishes from their own kitchen and we all got to sample a little bit of these various dishes and they explained to us you know, what this was and what it meant to them. Uh, two of those who gave their testimony that night are in the choir. Uh, Sarah was kind enough to do that, talk about growing up in Japan, and Vanna uh, talked to us about, sorry, <laughs> altos. Vanna talked to us about growing up in India uh, before coming to this country. So, of course, I thought of Sarah when I read this article about Dr. Nakaido. Sarah had told us how few Christians there are in Japan, fewer than 1% fewer than 1%. Dr. Nakaido did not grow up Christian. He was a little boy, a little bitty boy, when World War II was going on, raging in his country. His father was a physician, obstetrician, gynecologist, had his own little clinic in a part of Tokyo. Four weeks before the surrender came, his clinic was burned to the ground. Dr. Nakaido says, we were starving to death. There were people coming to my father for medical treatment but they had no money to pay. He was treating them, but receiving no compensation. They were starving to death. And so my father decided, as soon as we could, we would try to come to the United States of America. And in time, he said, I grew up. I had splendid education. I became a physician. I decided first that surgery was the way for me, finally cardiovascular surgery was the residency that I wanted to do, the fellowship that I did. One time he said I had worked on a person's heart who was in his 70s. thought I got the heart fixed really well, and then he died of something else three years later. So I decided, well, somebody needs to do that, but it isn't I. I want to operate on much younger ones who have much more to gain if my surgery is well done. So he said I became a pediatric cardiac surgeon. I operate on little kids' hearts. Well, he was being interviewed because he's now at the Children's Hospital at St. Francis in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He said, always I've wanted my patients to do really well. Always I've wanted my patients to get well. Always I've wanted them to live long and productive lives. For many years, he was head of pediatric cardiac surgery at the outstanding Children's Medical Center in Dallas. It's a part of the University of Texas teaching system there, but it's a big state-run hospital for the University of Texas. He accepted the opportunity to come to St. Francis in Tulsa because, he said, I could more clearly live out my own faith. At 48, he said, I became a Christian. I'm not saying it made me a better doctor, it didn't make me care any more for my patients than I already felt. But there was a new source of power and help that I came to rely on. I've stood with other moms and dads and had to share news that was not always good about their child. And then I lost my own son. So he said at St. Francis Hospital when the opportunity came, I was told that if I wanted to, I asked if I might, I could say to a mom and dad, could we hold hands 
and pray that I'm going to be at my very best when I operate on your child out of the hall. And most of them say, please, please do. And we hold hands and we pray. It just seems to make all the difference, he says.